the city paintball field where they have like little barrels. I'm not talking about that, guys. We're not playing around. This is a multi-acre wooded area. And so we, we, we start playing paintball, and the first round was a draw. They had it like timed for 20 or 30 minutes, and after 20, 30 minutes, if nobody won, they would kind of end it and let teams re-strategize and then go back at it. But in the second round, an utterly unexpected person led their team to victory. Let me describe this person for you. This person had, uh, and still has, very poor, sorry, very poor peripheral vision by their own admission. They could not run very fast. They were not the best shot. And yet, they managed to get all the way down to the other enemy's territory and capture the flag and win the game. Perhaps you're wondering, who was this single-handed savior of their team? Well, look at this picture right here. This guy right here. Now, if you're new to the church, you may be thinking, that looks like the guy on stage, but with hair, like, yes. And if you're wondering, like, what is going on with me? What am I doing in this photo? I don't know. All that I can say is that's about where I was in life. You know, that's about what you got with me and from me at the time. Okay? This is going to be really distracting. You got to take the picture away. That's going to be way too, we're not going to be able to focus. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I, I just marched down the field with maybe two paintball guns, slow motion, just taking out people all the way to the flag. Wish I could tell you uh, that's not what happened. Again, you'll take one more look at this guy, just, just, just in case you're wondering, was it skill? No. <laughs> it was not skill. Okay. Um, here's what happened. Oh, you can take the picture away. Good. Thank you. Um, Here's what happened. I ended up, we, we're in the middle of a firefight. You know, the, the lines are getting a little blurry. And, the, and, and I ended up getting kind of stuck on the side waiting for my opportunity. But the, the, the enemy line advanced past us, and I ended up behind enemy lines. Now, I was tempted to just run up and shoot the three people in the back. But I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't see anybody between me and almost like the whole back of the, 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 the field. So I make my way through the field. I get almost all the way down to the very end. And then I get spotted by a person. You know, they've got somebody patrol, a few folks patrolling around the flag. One of them spots me. They raise their gun. And I do, and this is what I do. Because I knew, uh, listen, man, again, poor peripheral vision, terrible aiming. I'm not going to take this person out. So I lower my gun and wave. <laughs> and, and give a thumbs up. And the person, like caught off guard, lowers their gun, shrugs, waves, and gives me a thumbs up. And I'm like, all right, so, you know, and so they just keep patrolling, and I just walk, literally walk all the way down, uh, trying to conceal my armband, you know, that, that says I'm on the other team, kind of walking this way, and I get to like 15, 20 feet away, and then I, then, I, then I just run, guns blazing, do the Rambo thing, and just, you know, get the flag, all right? Now, again, not a skill move, okay, this was, this was something else, so... Here's the question. How did that guy manage to get the flag? I was a terrible paintball player, but two things saved me, okay? These are important. First, a clear objective. I knew what we were trying to do. And second, an utter confidence, a misplaced confidence, but an utter confidence that I could do it. 
And those are the two things, I think, church, that are meant to anchor us in the midst of all the chaos and turmoil of our world. If we're going to be an Antioch church, a gospel-advancing church, through thick and thin, through joy and sorrow, through turmoil and chaos, we need to be a church that has a clear objective and an utter confidence in who God is and what he's called us to do. So first, our objective, Christ-centered. This is our objective, to be Christ-centered. Acts eleven twenty six reminds us of this objective. It says, for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, by way of reminder, they didn't come up with this name for themselves. This is a name that the, 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 the community, the non-believers assigned to the people in Antioch. Uh, Kent Hughes, a commentator on this, says this, cosmopolitan, sordid, voluptuous Antioch could not fit this new people into any of its categories, so a new name was born. See, they, they were trying to figure out what is the deal with these people, right? They, they, as we, we're going to see in a second, they, they have different ethnicities going on. They, they grew up speaking different languages. They're from different places. So what's their deal? They're not the Jews. They're not the non-Jews. I mean, what, what's going on? And so they, they have to create a new category. And the thing that they use is the defining characteristic of this people. The one thing that is always clear when you interact with these people is this. They are about Christ. Christian means Christ follower. That's what they are. And so, in this, we see what the church's true objective is. It is to be known for Christ and to live for Christ and to proclaim Christ. And notice that Paul and Barnabas, their teaching, we're meant to see their, their teaching had this effect, right? They were teaching them, and what they were teaching them is not just this and not just that, not about, just about marriage, not just about parenting. Not just about, in all that they taught, they taught Christ. That is what they were defined by. Now, this is exactly what you see from kind of beginning to end. Look at Paul, just Paul alone as an example. In uh, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul, this Paul, again, who's teaching them, he comes to Corinth to plant a church later, and he says this, And when I came to you, brothers in Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except one thing, Accept Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? That is his singular aim, his singular objective. All of his teaching, if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, they're threaded from start to finish with Jesus and him crucified over and over and over again. He doesn't have other songs. He's only got the one. And he talks about marriage in relationship to Christ and him crucified, work in relationship to Christ and him crucified, growth in relationship to Christ and him crucified, uh, unity in relationship to Christ and him crucified. That is his theme. He drives it into the ground. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says it explicitly. For I delivered to you what was of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried and was raised according to the scriptures, meaning this is the thing, the one thing, the main thing. A productivity writer, Stephen Covey, so you may, have, you may know Stephen Covey from back in the day, his seven habits of highly effective people were, was a big thing and a lot of people still use that. He has a section on the phrase, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
Now, when I read that, as you know, as a, my dad, I think, gave me his book when I was a teenager, and I'm looking, what are the productivity tools? How can I be, you know, effective? And I remember reading this section and thinking, well, my dad just wasted his money. This is, a child could come up with this. This is what I got. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? But as Covey unpacks it, you begin to realize there's, an, there's a brilliance there. there there's a there's a profundity, if I could use that word, there, that the main task in your life is to figure out what the main thing is and then keep that thing the main thing. That is what we're talking about, church. The main thing for the Christian and for the church is to keep Christ and him crucified the main thing in our lives, in our fellowship, and in our relationship to the world. Now, again, in, here's what happened in, in the first paintball game that our church was playing, right? First paintball game, I think we figured that the task was to take other people out, right? And so we just fought back and forth furiously for 30 minutes. And I think it was one of those games where, like, you, you, if you get hit, you'd go back and wait a five-minute timeout, and then you get to come back or something like that. And so we just kept, we just kept throwing people at each other, just, and, and guys were making cool shots. There were dives. There were rolls. I mean, everybody's trying to, you know, be, be uh, Jason Bourne out here, and, and, and yet it resulted in nothing. Because if we'd been smart, we would have remembered, what is the goal? The goal is getting the flag. And probably what we should have done is created a diversion and then sent everybody over there and sent like two guys down the field and actually grabbed the flag, which we did by accident in the end, right? If you don't keep a clear objective, you're never going to win. So this, church, this is the flag. This is the flag we must take in our lives and in our church. If we build an impressive multi-thousand person building, if we plant 10 churches in the next 10 years, if we succeed in getting our favorite political candidate elected, if we somehow manage to feed and clothe every person in a 10-mile radius from this building, if we do all of that, but we lose the center of Christ and Him crucified, we have utterly failed. And I'm not saying that those things are not important. Secondary issues, tertiary issues, those are important, but they are not Christ and him crucified. So let me ask you this, friend. Is the main thing in your life the main thing in Scripture? Is your life defined by the main thing in the Bible? The reality is it, it, this main thing, Christ and him crucified, defines reality. It defines the universe. Does it define your life? It, this, this affects everything, right? A, a big topic of conversation in our world today is, is racism, rightly. People are trying to figure out how do we eliminate racism? What are the, what's the solution to bring people of different races together? And, and you could read a hundred books. You can have a hundred proposals. But brothers and sisters, if Christ and him crucified is not at the center of our efforts to bring ethnic unity and to bring reconciliation in the gospel, then we failed. If, if, you know, I know a big thing right now is like everybody has like personality tests. Everybody wants to understand themselves. Everybody in a good way, I think, is into like counseling and self-care and all this stuff. And if you know yourself better than everything, you've got every, you know, I'm a lion, Enneagram 15 with this. And, you know, I'm just like... And I'm a, you know, this is my personality. I'm a BGA 5679er. And I'm like, okay, whatever. If you understand all of that, 
But what defines your life is not that you've lived and died, been buried and raised with Christ. Your self-identity is not complete. So, here's what I want you to see. When you keep the main thing, it has, main thing the main thing, it has profound implications on the church. It doesn't just, do you think, well, that doesn't do anything. It does everything. Uh, two examples. First, when you have Christ and him crucified at the center, the gospel gets across barriers that it could never cross otherwise. It says in verse 20 that the gospel crosses over to the Hellenists, to the non-Hebrew speakers, non-Jews. So John Piper says this, Until now, the gospel was spreading mostly along the monocultural lines of Judaism from synagogue to synagogue, with the exception of Cornelius in Acts 10. But in Antioch, someone broke through the barriers of language and culture and spoke the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, what leads a Christian to do that? What leads somebody fleeing from their li- for their lives from Jerusalem to show up and go, that guy who doesn't look like me or talk like me needs the gospel? How does that happen? It happens if you believe that no one is really better than anyone else in the sight of God. It happens when you believe the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it happens when you believe that there is also no one beyond the reach of Christ to save. So when you see that person that's different from you, you don't think, well, I'm better than them. You think, man, they need Jesus just like I did. But you also think, well, they're not so far that Jesus cannot reach in and transform and and save them. That's how the gospel gets there. A second illustration of this is that uh, keeping Christ and him crucified at the center of the church maintains the unity and builds the unity of the church. Remember in Acts 13 that we see this really diverse leadership team in the church, right? Barnabas, kind of a normal, good Jewish guy. Then you have Paul, the preeminent Jewish scholar and, and Roman citizen, and then you've got Manaean, who was an aristocrat in the Jewish world who grew up with Herod. Then you've got one guy from Africa, and then one guy that's very Greek, and you have them all serving together. And, and you think, man, you not think that they had some hard, weird political conversations? And we're like, man, the Roman Empire is the worst. And one guy's like, well, that's what got me through school. You know, another guy's like, well, I'm a Roman citizen, actually. I just hate the Roman citizens. I wish, oh, you're a Roman? Oh, okay, well, sorry, Paul. I didn't mean, I mean, you, you know what I mean, right? And... And you're, you're thinking, you know, they're shooting the breeze, and we're like, oh, man, I love this kind of music. Don't you guys love that? And they're like, I've never heard that in my life. It sounds like screeching cats. And, you know, they're, and they're trying to eat dinner. And the Jewish guys are like, oh, sorry, can't eat that. Oh, can't eat that either. And actually, also that. And then, yeah, that too. You know, and, and you have all of this going on. What, what allows them to be together? Christ and him crucified. That's the thing that binds them together. So let me encourage you. Church, let, let, let me encourage us and stir us up by way of reminder that our call is to share the gospel with people no matter what they look like, no matter how different they may be from us. We, we, we must build relationships across political lines, across cultural lines, give the gospel to anyone who needs it, which, by the way, is everyone. And we must maintain unity with other believers who think differently, who may have different convictions. Man, this last year has given us plenty of opportunity for that, has it not, friends? Anybody caught off guard by a friend that they thought they knew all of a sudden firing off on Facebook about an issue and, you're, and you just all of a sudden are like, oh, Susan, I, how dare you, you know, and you're just thinking, and, and you know, your spouse is like, oh, we should invite Susan and Greg over, or not, you know, and... Like, this is, this is what happens, guys. What's the only thing that's going to bridge this? Christ and him crucified. When you at that dinner table know, you need Jesus, I need Jesus. We're undeserved recipients of grace with a bright future ahead of us. 
that brings the church together. All right, second, that's first Christ-centered. That's our objective. Second, though, our posture must be a hopeful posture. A, and, and when I mean hopeful, I don't mean like, a, hey, I hope it works out, you know. I mean a resilient, unshakable, sure and steady confidence in who God is and what he has promised. The only reason I was able to get all the way down to that end of that paintball field and grab the flag is an insane and unrealistic and undeserved confidence in my own abilities to do it, Right? That's not what God's calling us to do. He's not just calling us to believe, like, oh, yeah, try to work up some faith. If you can get faith level 100, I sometimes I almost think people think of God like, well, you got to have faith and confidence, and once you get to level 100, something awesome is unlocked, and then you kind of go, Psh, another, and then a car is unlocked, and then a miracle is unlocked. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about moving forward in faith to what God has called us to do in the power that God has given us to do what he's called us to do. That's what we're talking about. And you see this in the church in Antioch. Man, this church in Antioch, they are not a timid church. They are not a fearful church, right? You think that they should be. They were planted out of persecution, right? If anybody has a past to be like, you know what? We're good for 10 years. We're just going to stay here and huddle up and kind of heal up for a second. But that's not what you see them doing. You see them investing their two best, their two kind of founding pastors in missions work, confident that God will be with their founding pastors as they go, and confident that God will be with them as they stay, that's the kind of confidence I believe God is calling us to have. Now, we read from chapter 12 in our scripture reading, and at first, chapter 12 seems a little bit like a detour, right? Chapter 11, it's, they're moving and shaking. The church in Antioch is planted, and they're, they're helping, and then chapter 12. And then chapter 13, the church sends out Paul and Barnabas. But in the middle, in chapter 12, you have this story that at first seems like a bizarre interruption. It doesn't seem encouraging in any way. Right? We read that part that Herod seized uh, James and killed James. You, know, you think about how, how important this was, how defining this would have been. The Jerusalem church founded in many ways on the leadership of these 12 apostles. All of a sudden, one is gone. All of a sudden, people are wondering, is God really going to take care of us? Is, is this gonna, are we going to be able to keep going? Right? And not only that, they, he captures Peter, puts him in prison. And is ready, just, just waiting to take his head off. And look at what happens. Look at, look at the language here. The language here is everything about this language is like Peter ain't getting out of here alive, right? Look at, look at verse 4. Herod seized him, put him in prison. He delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, right? So you're like, man, that, doesn't, that seems tough. And then verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter, this is their security, was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So, in other words, like, he's, he is literally bound up with two guys, with two chains, with sentries, outside four squads of soldiers, right? Here's the point. No one is breaking out of there. No one is breaking into there, right? Herod knows these Christians, weird stuff happens with them, okay? All of a sudden, people are getting healed. Their dead men are coming back from life. We're not taking any chances. We're going to take 40, 50 guys. We're going to lock this thing down, right? And, and there will be times, let me just say this, especially this week, there will be times in our lives 
where that's what life feels like, right? Where you feel chained up, you've got people right here, and, and even if you could break out of that, there's more barriers over here. Or maybe for us advancing the gospel as a church, we're like, well, man, Maybe God's calling us to take a step of faith, but man, I don't see how we could possibly do this because what about this and what about that and this and this and this? There's, there's just no way. This is why Acts 12 is where it is in the scripture to grow our confidence and our hope in God and his promises. Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord. Now, we're not meant to be impressed by the angel, but by the Lord who sent him. An angel of the Lord stood next to him. You're like, how'd that angel get in there? Well, it helps if you can control all of matter and time and eternity as God just pops him in there. And light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and awoke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And what you see is this, this almost comical scene where Peter, he kind of, he goes, oh, it's a dream. You know, it's a dream. It's a metaphor. It's like the thing with the, with the you know, the, the, the Cornelius thing, right? The sheet, this is one of those. It's like a metaphor. I'm metaphorically being uh, escorted out of prison. What does this mean, Lord? You know, and he finally walks all the way out of the prison He's looking back, he sees all the squads of soldiers, and he kind of like wakes up and goes, oh, this is real. I'm not metaphorically freed, I'm actually freed. Like, this is a real thing. And then he goes to the believers, and here's what the believers do. They do not believe that it is Peter, despite the fact that they are in the house praying for his release. Right? They're like, Lord, please help Peter, please rescue him. Somebody's knocking, just tell him to go away, we're praying, we're praying for God to release Peter. He says he's Peter. It's a ghost. It's some guy with a joke, right? We got to pray here. And all of a sudden, they, they realize, oh, no, it is. this is Peter. Not metaphorically freed, but actually freed. And then, it, it, here's what goes. It doesn't just end there. Then it goes on to the second passage we read, that Mike read, that, that here, here's the reversal, okay? Beginning of chapter 12, Herod reigns and rules James is killed, and Peter's in chains. But by the end of the chapter, Peter is freed, Herod is killed, and the Lord rules and reigns. Right? That, that, that's meant to do something in, in backdrop to chapter 13. As they're about to send people out, the first missions workers intentionally sent from one place to another, the backdrop to that is this, that Satan may rage, the world may rage, there may be chaos and turmoil and suffering, but through it all, the Lord reigns. Through it all, the Lord acts to preserve his church, and through it all, the Lord advances the gospel until the day his son returns. This is what you see, brothers and sisters. Man, I hope this is building some faith for you for this next week. Because I got to the end of this week with like my faith level at like two, right? Out of a hundred or something like that. Like I'm not, I wasn't fired up. Man, I hope you are getting fired up by this passage. And I love the, the end phrase, but the word of God increased 
and multiplied. Again, the, the power of the church is not, man, Peter's a brilliant strategist. Paul's a brilliant uh, kind of rhetorician, orator. They got all the, the right people doing amazing things. No, the, the way the church is preserved and advances is because the living God is among them and advancing the gospel. The, the word of God is not this sort of dead, the word of the gospel, we're meant to understand, that, that it's not this dead, dry, you know, annals of Julius Caesar, you know, you open that thing up, no, nobody's getting anything except for dust in their face. The scripture, you open it, the word of God, you proclaim it, and it is alive. And not only that, but we've seen throughout that, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that's advancing the, the gospel through the Word of God, the Spirit of God is alive in and among the church itself. Barnabas, a man full of the Spirit, right? The Spirit speaking to the church, encouraging the church, building up the church. The church is being advanced by God. It's probably the way to say it. Not even the church is advancing itself. So let me just ask you, friend, where is your level of hope in God right now? Maybe this week. Where are you tempted to look around at the circumstances of your life or our country or our world and shrink back in timidity, shrink back in discouragement? Man, I think this passage should propel us forward to be Acts 13 Christians, willing to go, willing to send, willing to stay, willing to, to labor for the cause of the gospel. And let me just say this, side note, I just want to clarify this. This is not like your own personal agenda. I'm not speaking this to be like, man, I really, my dream is to have Alexis someday. And I'm not speaking this to say, yeah, the, you know, the Lord is going to give you. I'm, I'm saying this. When Christians take up the work of God, the power of God goes with them. So maybe there may be times where you're running up against the wall in your life. You're like, I just don't know why it's not working. Well, are you, have you taken up the call of God, the cause of God in your life? Because if so, then Jesus promises behind you that, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I don't know about the Lexus, but you could, you could count on that. All right, let me end by, by doing this. As we close, I want to give you a living illustration of what this looks and feels like. Uh, because I think that's helpful. Um, what does it mean to be someone with a crystal clarity on what the main thing is and an utter confidence in God's ability to advance the gospel despite the circumstances of your life. I want to introduce you to prisoner number 2491. His name was Paul Schneider. He had purposed to become a doctor, but he was called to serve for Germany in World War I and returned home a shaken and broken man. He wrote, my discharge to the home front found me determined to devote myself to the study of theology. Listen to this. Because here alone was power to rebuild a heartbroken nation and a heartbroken humanity. So as he, he studied and became a minister, took over, I think, his father's church, and as the Nazis rose to power, they began to threaten pastors like him. They, there's an official Nazi church that was under the control of the Nazi party, and he did not want to conform to that. He writes this, certainly, we still live in this world and with this suffering people and also share its sufferings, but we have a commission and a calling from another world. 
and our citizenship is there. And we know that in spite of everything, this world, this heavenly world, will one day be victorious. Eventually, Schneider was taken to a concentration camp and became prisoner 2491. To the best of historical record that we know, he was the first pastor martyred by the Nazis. But there's an account from one of the fellow prisoners that Schneider was in the camp with that made it out. The, the account was that Schneider, in the camp, refused to stop speaking about Christ, was beaten repeatedly, was put in isolation, but he had this particular habit that, that this, let me allow the prisoner, fellow prisoner to describe it for you. He, they say this, every morning, Schneider's voice was heard ringing out loudly and clearly from the solitary confinement building almost across the whole square when tens of thousands had lined up for roll call. So imagine the scene, right? He is in his cell. All he, can, he has a tiny window. He waits every day for roll call and with all the breath in his lungs yells this. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. If we have faith in him, we are put right with God. We need not fear what man may do to us because we, through Christ, belong to the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, has promised that we, by faith in him, may participate in his resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. Accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and God will receive you as his child. This sermon he gave repeatedly until he was killed. Now, church, as we close this kind of mini-series on being an Antioch church, this is my burden, okay? My burden is this, that I do pray that after the last year and a half, we feel more urgency for the call of Christ in our generation. We do not know if the next month is promised us. We do not know what the next year will bring. We do not know if we have another decade together as a church, but we know this. The task is urgent, and our confidence in God is sure. So therefore, brothers and sisters, may we be an Antioch church sacrificially advancing the gospel. May we be a church that cares deeply about our city of El Paso and the surrounding region. May we be a church that, that sacrificial leaders are raised up, servant leaders are raised up, where we work with other churches and support them, where we one-to-one -one minister to one another, and that we do all of this faithfully, week after week, year after year, preaching one message until Christ returns, and that is Christ and Him crucified. And may we, in our city, be known more than anything for one thing, for Christ. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray. Oh, I got to give you one more quote from Schneider before we pray. 
oh, this is, I think this is a word for us, church, in many ways. He says this, we do not see how the poor, unprotected little boat of the church can be preserved among the powers and the forces of the world. But then we must remember, in this boat, the Lord is with us, and soon he will be up. Let's pray. Father, I do pray today. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know Christ, that they would hear Paul Schneider's, what is it, 70, 80-year-old sermon and believe in Jesus Christ and be assured of the hope of heaven and adoption by God into his family, no matter what the rest of the day or life their life holds. And may they look to you and believe on you. And may all of us, Father, may we be a people full of deeply rooted confidence and hope, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not, not that we can see things working out, but rather confidence in God and his promises. And in light of that, God, may we live our days out preaching one sermon like Paul Schneider over and over and over again. Accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and he will receive you as his child. Amen.